guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. You're going to like my guest today, Dean Beers from Colorado. But before I start talking about Dean, I need to give you the blast from the past question for the day. And that is, in 1898, what state's governor had the power to issue or revoke a private investigator's license? So, today's topic is Practical Investigation, a Map to Finding Facts, an author forensic expert and Colorado private investigator Dean Beers discusses practical methods for legal investigations, and that's the title of his recently released book. Dean's going to fill us in on the methodology to ensure investigations follow a map of clues leading to a successful investigation in both criminal and civil cases. And those of you who are not investigators might find this useful if you've ever been involved in a legal procedure or you think you're going to be. Dean Beers has been a guest on this show previously with Indiana private investigator Don Johnson, a show entitled Suspicious Suicides. That show can be found in the show archives from October 7th of last year, 2010. Dean's a private investigator and expert in criminal defense homicide and civil equivocal death investigations. He's certified as a medical legal death investigator. Investigator. He served as a forensic autopsy assistant and has extensive background in medical, legal, forensic, and factual investigations. He's also a certified legal investigator through the National Association of Legal Investigators. He's board chairman of Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado. He's a member and regional director of the National Council of Investigative Investigation and Security Services. And, of course, I said he was a member of uh, National Association of Legal Investigators. That's NALI. But he's also a contributing author to The Legal Investigator with his Forensic Focus column, and he serves on the Certified Legal Investigator Committee. He's, you know, he also holds memberships in uh, so, uh, reclaimed associations like World Association of Detectives, National Association of Medical Examiners, International Association for Identification, and he is a Mensa USA member. Besides the book we're going to be talking about today, he also authored professional locate investigations. But the Practical Methods for Legal Investigations was just released a few months ago. Hey there, Dean. Welcome. Hi, Francie. Thank you for having me on again. I certainly appreciate it. 
It's a pleasure. First of all, I already mentioned you're located in Colorado, and you have some recent really good news. Really good news. Our licensing committee worked really hard for the last 18 months and particularly hard in the last six months to uh, draft legislation, find bill sponsors, and for the first time in 34 years, uh, we're going, we now have a law for PI licensing in Colorado that will take effect uh, June of next year. That's just wonderful. It we're- is. It's very exciting, and I'm very grateful to all the uh, support uh, from PPIC committees to the membership, also NCISS and NALI and other associations were very supportive, as well as state association and investigators all over the country were just pouring in the support, and I just want to extend my, my thanks to everybody on that. Yes, I think we'd all love to see every state have a licensing law. It's to protect us and protect our clients. I th- you know, it's a, it's a necessity uh, these days. Absolutely. Um, and then you, don't you have a conference coming up, Dean? We do have a conference. Uh, I'm, I'm tagging it as our celebration conference. Uh-huh. Uh, it's September 23rd and 24th. Uh, we have some great speakers coming out. Uh, Rory McBana, fellow CLI, and my proctor, as well as the guy that convinced me to write this book. He'll be out speaking. Uh, Steve uh, Rambaum will be out. And uh, Jimmy Mises will be out, as as well as uh, Tim Schmolder from PPIC will be speaking, and a few more other people will be joining us. So it's uh, PI Museum is going to be coming out. So it's going to be an exciting conference, and I, I invite everybody that can to try to come out. That's right. And the guy that encouraged you to write the book was that Rory McMahon. Yeah, Rory. Uh, yeah, Rory saw a present uh, presentation I gave at one of our state conferences on a protocol for legal investigation, and in an email asked if he could use it for some of his students and then suggested that I write a book. So I countered with, I can do that if you'll send me information <laughs> for your editor. So oh, he was great. kind enough to do that, and uh, then it got started. Yes, because Rory's an, an edit, uh, author in his own right. And, and as a matter of fact, he was on the show last week uh, entitled, What is a Professional Investigator? Yeah, and it was very good. Yep, That's absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well, and you and your wife, Karen, work together. We do. Uh, Karen's, uh, well, we'll be celebrating 20 years together this October, but she's been active in, uh, with the agency. She's a, you know, half partner since 96. Um, she's been involved in all the aspects. Just, uh, a lot of people think she's behind the scenes, but if you sit down in our office, you'll see that she's as involved in every case as I am. Um, she also worked at the medical examiner's office, received the same training, um, and maybe for a shorter amount of time, but also as a forensic autopsy assistant. So our, our teamwork works together great, and, and that's something a lot of people don't realize. That uh, you know, they hand something to me to review, but it actually gets both of us involved. That's great. And that I also great. happen to know that you have twin grandchildren. <laughs> we have a granddaughter that uh, will be three in December, and then we have twin grandsons that will be two years old, uh, here coming July 11th, so just, just over a week. How fun is that? It, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. They're, they're great kids. We, look, we enjoy watching them slowly grow up, even though sometimes we feel it's already fast. Right, exactly, exactly true. Well, Dean, you had a life-changing event that seems to have jumped you into the field you are now. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, briefly. Uh, September 1st of 2000, um, uh, to make a really long story really short, my dad and I were going to his sister's house in Colorado Springs, and we're up about three hours north of there. 
and about 10 minutes away, we got hit by a teenage drunk driver, um, and that uh, put my dad in rehabilitation for about a year and ultimately retired him disabled, and it put me on a track to figure out what I needed to do. Uh, we both had uh, closed brain injuries, which are now called traumatic brain injuries. Uh, so about a, a little more than a year of brain injury therapy, uh, I had realized that I couldn't conduct business and be in here at the same time because, as you know, when we're self-employed, we're also business persons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to find something else to do, but all my testing came back as an investigator. And I ended up finding out that Larimer County uh, had the only investigation training in the state. So I got in with that, and it was kind of a difficult process to get through and began the training process, completed that early. I worked part-time at Weld County and Larimer County. Uh, and that's under both in Colorado. Both yeah, Colorado. in Colorado, right. And then um, down the road uh, from there, uh, that started in September 2002, and then in 2005 I started working full-time. Uh, in between that, uh, Karen had taken her training as well and also worked part-time uh, in the death investigation component. And then in 2008, um, I had a lot of requests to, from former clients to do work for them, and I decided that the time was right to return to the private sector, and I did. Um, and I was full-fledged determined to give back to a profession that for the first 18 years of my life had you know, helped raise a family and all. And what, so the and, event really was significant. What, and what, Dean, were you doing prior to that horrible accident? Uh, I, I, I was involved in legal investigations since 1987. Okay. Uh, so, you know, in the private sector and, and did a lot of backgrounds and skip traces and, and a lot of civil work, not as much criminal work, but a lot of civil work. Um, and I missed it a great deal and, and, and felt in 2008 that I was ready to return. Well, we're glad you did. Yeah. Well, really I glad think we did. are too. <laughs> yeah. So... You talk a lot about being a professional investigator, a professional legal investigator. What is that? Well, uh, you know, there's different components to private investigation. I talk to a lot of people getting into the business, but legal investigators, and, and you are a part of NALI, but for those that don't know, we deal primarily with uh, civil and criminal litigation, uh, civil plaintiff or a person, you know, maybe wrong, maybe in a wrongful action, wrongful death or a car accident. Uh, you know, hires an attorney, and then they hire the legal investigator to be the fact finders. And then on the criminal side, we worked as criminal defense investigators uh, to do the same thing on behalf of a defendant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other investigators, such as domestic surveillance, workers' comp, and things like insurance and stuff. But and for us, and, and uh, we deal primarily with civil and litigation and, and criminal defense work. Okay. Okay. And. You mention in your book five qualities of a professional legal investigator. What would those be? Well, uh, the, the first thing is, you know, for the professionalism, uh, ethics, uh, communication is important. Um, I. Continuing education is one of the most important ones to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's very you know five components that I consistently uh, feel that every professional investigator needs to have, and if if they follow those, um, you know, licensing if it's applicable, um, communication with your client to be unbiased, 
to be fact finders, uh, to write clear and concise reports, open communication, uh, you know, and ethics are very important, of course. And uh, I guess having the experience and the skill to do the specific investigation that would be involved. Oh, yeah, I guess I forgot that part. Yes, that's very important. Uh, not that a person that's unskilled can be involved in the investigative process, but we don't want to take on more than we can chew. Uh, we need to have the continuing education to get us where we need to go. Uh, you know, there's so many people in the investigative field that if we can't do something, we can always reach out to somebody through one of our associations or networks mm-hmm. uh, to get that and through that process acquire those skills that we need. So that's, you know, very important that we do that, which was one of the reasons that I decided to write the book based on my experience with the motor vehicle accident and brain injury recovery, as well as realizing that, you know, there was a need for ethics and continuing education and skills, um, you know, uh, to be condensed into a volume. And, you know, and I think something that maybe the general public doesn't know is we're simply fact finders. Yeah, that's all. Uh, we don't. We don't have. Uh, you know, we describe this as a, as a map to finding facts, and that's exactly what we do. We don't. We don't know what the truth is uh, in the end. In fact, we almost don't know what the facts are. We have information based on reports given to us, and then from there, we we do our best to determine the facts and use those facts as evidence. You know, in a court of law or mediation or whatever the case may be, so that the trier fact can determine. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the one of the cases I've worked on. A police, a, a detective noted that he talked to the victim and confirmed the facts. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my question was, well, A, how did you confirm something? And right. B, how were they suddenly facts? That's a good, exact good place for a break, Dean. Okay. Um, that was a that was private investigator and forensic expert Dean Beers. We'll be back after the break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I did investigator Dean Beers been telling us about the right way or a a protocol to conduct an investigation. And, Dean, you were just saying about uh, this case that you had where the police officer reported that he got the facts from a witness. Yeah, it actually, yeah, it was actually the, the, the reporting victim to the crime. Um, and, and, he, and his probable cause affidavit indicated that he contacted the victim and confirmed the facts. And when I see something like that, it, it's alarming because we don't really know what the facts are yet. The, the the incident was just reported, and how were they confirmed? I mean, you know, we all like to believe that somebody can tell the truth or, or actually witnessed what they have related, but, you know, maybe that's not true. We don't know what the facts are until an investigation is conducted, and sometimes those facts, as reported, don't turn out to be that way, and sometimes they do, and it can change the course of how things go. So it would seem at least on the surface, that maybe in this particular situation the, the person that was taking the report was a little biased if, if they're reporting that the information they received were facts. Yeah, there, there's going to be, I believe, a natural bias when you have uh, a, a, an alleged victim reporting something because you want to believe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so without your own observations and nothing else to go on, you tend to think that that's facts when it's really, at that point, just information. It hasn't become factual or evidence. Um, and as legal investigators, that's really what we need to be looking out for is uh, seeing what information is there, seeing what's factual, and then seeing what can be used as evidence. And you have, you've recommended three requirements that should exist in all investigations. What are those? Well, you need to have uh, a sufficient amount of time, funds, and resources. 
Uh, sometimes you can get away with two out of three. You might have enough time. You might have enough funds. And sometimes you can find resources through your network, as I was just talking about. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes you have the time and resources, and there may not be the funding. And, and that happens a lot in court-appointed cases or something. Um, and sometimes you just don't have time, but the the funding isn't the problem and the resources isn't the problem. So you got to make do with what you have, but you're, you're really never going to be successful if the only thing you have is time to conduct the investigation, but you have no resources or funding, you know, things like that. So we right. always try to do the best we can to, to get all three of those uh, in some way or another and make them work out. And sometimes the funding is uh, a retained case where the client pays the attorney to represent them. Yes. And other times it's like a criminal case would be uh, potentially court-appointed where the funds come from either the court or the county or the state. Yeah, and often the court-appointed, you know, the, the pay is much lower and it could be federal or, you know, state, county, like you said. Uh, and then also there's the issue of the expenses that might need to be involved, and sometimes they take... Uh, a, a lot longer process for approval as opposed to just calling the attorney and saying, you know, this is what we need to do and getting his recommendation based on legal strategy. Uh, but we always need to have that communication. One of, the, one of those things we need to have is communication in all cases. But uh, we do need to, to, to have as much of those three resources as we can. And then the resources are sometimes expert witnesses or people that you would go to to evaluate the evidence to see if the evidence said what it's been been reported? Yeah, the experts, which, you know, working in, in, in the legal field tend to be, uh, you know, in the called forensics, uh, they, you know, they're basically applying a science or uh, a practical method to the law. Uh, so that could be everything from forensic knots to talk, forensic toxicology, uh, you know, auto reconstruction, so any of the and we are we need experts. Uh, we need experts to answer the questions for us that we don't have, as well as to be able to to testify in front of the the judge or jury about what's going on. And and you also talked about networking, and and you mean by that the various associations we all belong to have people of various specialties that we can call on periodically for assistance. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I recommend to everybody that at a minimum you join your national, your state association uh, to have that networking and, and experience, as well as a national association based on what you focus on, such as, um, you know, we're legal investigators, so we're part of NALI. Um, you also have fire investigators, uh, auto reconstruction, stuff like that, and they belong to more specific associations. And I also feel like you should belong to a legislative association. Um, the states often take care of that at the state level. But on the national level, there's not very very many, and it's so broad. So, uh, you know, I'm part of NCISS, and you're on the board and past president and chairman. So I think it's important to look out for, for our profession at both the state and national level. Yeah, and it yeah. helps with the networking, uh, find the experts and consultants and other investigators and researchers that we need. Yeah, and you're talking about NCISS is National Council of Investigation and Security Services. Yes. yes. Yeah. So people, <laughs> we talk those acronyms. Uh, so, uh, Dean, what? Um, tell us about the roles in the legal system. What are the various roles? Well, there's really three primary roles. Um, there's the finders of fact, which are us, the legal investigators. And then you have uh, those that present the facts to the judge and jury, which typically are the attorneys. And then you have the judge and jury, which are the triers of fact. And, and all three of those uh, are are the essential components of our legal system and the and the legal drama that tends to unfold. Um, 
you know, as I describe in my book, you know, the attorneys are the bus uh, that carry our facts, you know, to the destination. Uh, so if you think of it that way, mm-hmm. and then if you realize that bus is on a road, you know, the map, uh, that's kind of how I pictured it in my head as I was doing part of this book is so that people could understand that's all essential. Uh, you know, we're just transporting information from one point to another, uh, and that's what, that's what we need to do. And carrying that one step further, then the investigators become the eyes and ears and hands and feet of the attorney. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the attorney develops the legal strategy, and we develop the information, and you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, also I think that there's often a misunderstanding about law enforcement's role because their job really isn't to, quote, solve the case. It's to get enough information about the case to have probable cause for an arrest. Yeah, um, you know, they start with reasonable suspicion, you know, uh, you know, to make a contact or something, or or something's reported. And, and yeah, they're, the, the purpose, all they have to do is conduct an investigation, and that's one of my key things that I focus on is conducting versus completing an investigation. Uh, law enforcement, uh, insurance adjusters, uh, they simply have to follow a criteria to reach a, a determined point. They have a determined point. That's to close the case, whether it be by arrest, by recommending prosecution, you know, their probable cause. Insurance adjusters just need to close the file with determining, you know, uh, whether they're going to pay for car damage or house damage or something. But as legal investigators, we have an obligation, an, an absolute obligation, to complete the investigation. I don't know that we're going to solve something. Uh, we would like to, you know, exoneration of an innocent person is the ultimate goal in a criminal defense. Uh, but at the very least, what we're doing is gathering the facts uh, to become evidence, you know, information and facts to become evidence so that we can show that we've completed the investigation from beginning to end. We've, we've gone through all the protocols to successfully leave no stone unturned. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, th- I think we need to go a- above and beyond what what our opponents may go through to to reach the end. Yeah, and you know, I uh, sometimes I get to the end of a case and and regardless of the result, whether it goes to trial or whether it, there's a conviction or an acquittal or a hung jury or whatever it is, I still don't know what the truth is. Sometimes no, we we're just fact finders. Right. Uh, we we you know, I know that sometimes uh, other investigators will say, "Well, we're looking for the truth." And and I guess we are. But the only person that knows the truth is the person that knows what did and didn't happen. Yeah, we may uh, be looking may be for our, it, but we don't our, find it <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it could be anybody from our client to uh, any other person, but you can't get to the truth no matter what without getting to the facts. Exactly. Um, so we can't overlook the facts. The facts are the most important component of what we do. You divide investigation into stages. Can you elaborate on that? Um I, I hope in, in my brain rehabilitation therapy, I, have, I learned quite a bit about methodology, which I think every investigator knows already. I just don't know that we realize that that's what we do. And in the process of developing some uh, methodologies, I, I focused on, you know, five key things that we need to do in order to successfully go from the beginning to the end of either an assignment which is a component of an investigative process or the full investigation. 
uh, like an assignment could be an interview or a scene reconstruction or something. And then, of course, the investigation is the whole, all the components put together. But I feel that we need to, you know, be prepared. Uh, we inquire, we analyze, we document and report. Um, that's the five protocols that, that I follow and that I put in my book. Um, if we're not prepared, we can't move to the next step, which is the inquire. And often uh, in our opponents, we find that the best they can do is, is investigation and then reporting and kind of leaving out some of the other key things. Um, and as legal investigators, if we focus on those, then we do a much better representation of our client. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about preparation, what does that include? Oh, for example, in civil or criminal cases, uh, you, you need to start with uh, discussions with the client, both the attorney and the person being represented. Uh, often that's overlooked. It, it may be a year later that an attorney will call you and say, here's what we need to get started on, especially mm-hmm. in a civil case. Uh, all their settlement conferences have failed and they're looking at trial. And now they want the legal investigator. But I think, uh, as I've taught my, most of my clients, as soon as you get a call, I should be the next one so we can sit down and get started. After that, uh, you need to look at the discovery and disclosure in the civil and criminal cases thoroughly and review those with with the attorney and the client uh, as needed. And it just continues as a building block from there. Uh, We simply can't move into an investigative process if we don't know uh, what the discovery and disclosure is, what uh, confirmed facts to use an old phrase from earlier, maybe, and and what we're looking at for potential, uh, our witnesses, our our fact-finding process, and our investigative process. That might include going to the, if there's a crime scene or an event scene, you go to that, you might take photographs. One of the most overlooked things is going to where where the event took place, and I think we all in the investigative field need to be careful. Uh, You know, it's called a crime scene, but... In the civil arena, that doesn't mean there's a crime, and but particularly, we don't know that a crime has actually taken place. There's a lot there. There is false reporting. Um, I do a lot of sex assault cases, um, and there are those that are legitimate, and there are those that are false reports. So we really just have an event that is reported to have taken place, or we have a motor vehicle collision. It may not be an accident. It may be an accident. It may be a crime, and it may not. So it's just for me, it's just an incident or an event. And if you don't go there, then you can't use your eyes, as you mentioned earlier, to go back to the attorney and tell them what what you saw, and you know by report, verbally or written. So that's one of the most overlooked things: is going to the scene. Okay, okay. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we're discussing practical investigations. Back after a commercial break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator, author, and forensic expert Dean Beers is my guest today. We were just talking about the stages of investigation, and uh, you were just saying how important it is to go to where, wherever the event scene is to look at um, look at the surroundings, look at the crime scene if it's a crime, a collision if it's a uh, some kind of a car accident. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, we're we're reporting back to our client what we saw, were their eyes and their ears. Uh, we're also needing to get perspective of what. Uh, the persons involved um, may have seen or may not have seen or not been able to see as well as witnesses. Uh, there may be issues uh, such as obstructing issues, trees and stuff. Um, you know, I, I look at blood spatter and things like that, uh, which often isn't actually at the crime scene, but photographs, and then I you know, go to the crime scene and, and get a better idea of what's going on, um, you know, where that took place. Uh, damages to vehicles. Um, you know, was there pre-existing damage? Was there damage that was subsequent uh, to a multi-car collision? You know, all kinds of different things that we need to, to go there for that you just can't get the concept of from just photographs and reports. And don't you always find, Dean, that um, 
it looks different than you thought it was going to look? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, when I was in Dallas for the World Investigators Conference last year, uh, good friend Dale Wunderlich, uh, past president of PPIC and NCISS board member, uh, was a Secret Service agent at the time of Kennedy's assassination. Mm-hmm. And he was able to um, you know, arrange for a tour of the book depository building. Right. Uh, and, you know, I've read a lot of books about the John F. Kennedy assassinations, you know, have the Zapruder film and stuff. But when you get up there, you realize that that's not the trick shot that you're led to believe it was. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the height and the distance are much different mm-hmm. than what you could perceive in reading a book or even seeing photographs. It was, it was, it was quite enlightening to see that. And, and I, I took away from that um, that example because everybody's aware of what they've read about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Um, but it's, but the perception can be totally different. Um, everything from colors to distances to peripheral vision. So, uh, yeah, we definitely need to have a good perspective of yeah. what's going on. It is. It's interesting. It's there, things are either bigger or smaller than they thought you thought they were. The distance is shorter or further than you thought it was. Just yeah. from your perception. It's you know. It's like I always. The analogy I always use is it's like reading a book and then seeing the movie. It's a completely exactly. different That's theme. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So then you go into stay your stage two where you're inquiring. So what does that involve? Yeah, the inquirer is is more or less the actual investigative process. That's where we're we're uh, you know, and it's inquirer because we may be looking into more records uh, based on what we find in the discovery, disclosure, witness statements. Um, we're talking to witnesses. We have our interviews, you know, questions figured out. Um, we have a plan. Uh, we we know how to follow up with their narration that we have the witness give us first that we're talking mm-hmm. to. Uh, we, you know, in my case, uh, I might go to the funeral home, look at the decedent, uh, you know, take photographs, document injuries, things like that. Uh, vehicle collisions, go look at the vehicle, go look at the intersection. Uh, you know, and I know that was all part of the repair, but we go, f- while we're at the scene, we also might step right into the next stage and start the investigative process. Um, so one can lead right into the other, uh, you know, flowing, or they could be completely separate. Um, we, uh, you know, like I said, talk to the witnesses, and then from there we talk, you know, take that information and go on to the next witness, and we're just creating a map. We're following one point to the next through the investigative process uh, in a way parallel to what we read in the law enforcement or insurance reports, but yet at the same time it's our own investigation that we're doing. Correct. Uh, so that's the importance of the inquirers is we're both comparing and contrasting, but yet we're, we're on our own road. And then once you get all that together, um, or sometimes in the process, you're analyzing as you go. Yeah, and that's another step that I I found valuable that I I think we all do, but we don't realize it. And and I think it for some of us, and particularly me, I learned in my uh, brain rehabilitation, uh, we need to focus on a little more. Uh, all the analyze is is you, all the information you've acquired through the inquire stage, including everything you did while you're preparing. You're looking at that and you know, you're putting the pieces together, um, seeing what was there, what's factual, what's not, um, you know, that whole compare and contrast. And that might give you some, some new direction. Do you need to go back to where the incident took place? Or do you need to go back and talk to another witness? Or do you need to go back to a report and find out uh, maybe there was something that a witness 
was not being honest with you about, or maybe there was something in in the disclosures and discovery that isn't factual anymore, uh, and you're finding out that confirmed facts aren't facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you analyze that. You're putting it all together. Putting all you're starting to put the pieces together. Uh, you know, for that. And then, of course, everything has to be documented. Documented, uh, yeah. Documented isn't the, isn't the reporting stage yet. Uh, document is is making sure we have our uh, you know our eyes dotted, our T's crossed. Uh, if we collect evidence, uh, although we're not law enforcement, so we don't like have to have an evidence log. Uh, I keep one uh, in case I ever have to testify as to how I attained something or what I did with it, or if the opposing counsel has a right to conduct. Uh, the same type of inquiry that I might have conducted um, or have an examination done or something like that. So we need to have documentation that's organized um, and that's going to help us with moving on to the next stage. So it's it's an organization process more than anything as we're documenting our, our investigative case. Okay, and then on top of that, you have to um, issue reports on everything you do or, or the witness interviews, et cetera. Yeah, and the reports you know, vary in style from, you know, verbal or written. And uh, it depends on the attorney, the client, the case, the type of case, and, and what they need. We're not hiding anything. We're not being deceitful or unethical. We're just simply, uh, you know, writing the report based on the facts that we've attained uh, in a manner that the client wishes. Because the, one of the big concerns, uh, especially in civil cases, is disclosure. Um, you know, we may find out information that, it's better for the other side to find out on their own mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just handing it over to them. Um, but, yeah, reporting is our work product. It's, it's who we are. It's a statement of who we are. It's a statement of, of the quality of the investigator that we are. Uh, but it's also a statement of, of the case facts and the quality of the case. And it may uh, change the legal strategy of the attorney that's working the case. Uh, so it's, it's one of the most important components of the, I mean, it's the conclusion of the case, so to speak, but it could be seen by the attorney, by opposing counsel, by the judge, even by the jury. It's going to be seen by your client. So it's not just content, but 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 the nature of the content, uh, grammar, um, how it flows, if everything's in there, uh, if everything's accurate. Because in going back to the prepare stage, one of the things we're doing when we're looking at discovering disclosure is, are these good reports? Was it a good investigation? Was it sufficient? Um, was it an investigation that was conducted, or was it an investigation that was actually completed? And that's how our reports need to be finalized, is is we need to be our own critics. Right. And when you complete that investigation protocol of the five stages, what do you have? You have a completed investigation, uh, an investigation you've conducted every component, all five components, and and the end result is you've you've completed the investigation to the best that you can, based on the time, money, and resources that you had available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we'd like to solve every crime, but we may not be able to. But to the best of our ability, um, we've com- we've completed it without any bias, without any um, intent to reach a conclusion. You know we may have a theory, and that theory may be. Uh, you know, underscored when we're done, or it may be thrown out in the middle of the whole process. But, but we don't have a conclusion before we get started. In fact, sometimes uh, the best way to conduct an investigation is to go backwards. Uh, right. We know that a, a vehicle accident happened, but we don't know how. 
So we actually work backwards, but we need to, um, but we still need to move forward through the investigative process. Well, and that's act, that right there is a, something you said that was very key, I think, because I think many times an investigation, whether it's from private investigation, government investigation, law enforcement, whatever it is, sometimes you start out with what you think happened and you work that theory. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with working a theory because that's that's part of our map, or, or they may provide some guidance to you know on our map. Uh, but we need to find out if that theory is has any foundation or not. Um, it may be our own theory, or it may be oppo- the opposing party's theory. Uh, we need to see if any theories you know can hold water or not. Uh, and it, and it, those theories may lead us to new witnesses, new new information new facts and new evidence um, that may support the theory or alter the theory a little bit. But in the end, we're still going to be finding facts and we're going to be completing the full investigative process. Yeah, and and you don't want to try to be plugging the round pegs into the square holes of your theory if they don't work. You can't, you can't force a theory into the facts, and yeah. that's one of the things that we do is look to see if that's what happened. Did somebody take a set of facts and try to force it into a theory? We're just trying to take facts and show what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's we, we can't conclude an investigation by saying, um, you know, this is the theory and this is the facts. And if I could give one great example, uh, j- just this week, Timothy Masters here in Fort Collins was finally exonerated and received an apology for uh, a homicide that he didn't commit and he served 10 years in prison for. But the defense was showing that uh, that information and, and, and some facts were trying to be pressed into a theory that wasn't plausible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- you know, and unfortunately we see that with a little bit more frequency than we'd like. More and more, especially with uh, better investigative processes, better forensics, um, you know, better protocols, and, and really, in my opinion, good legal investigators going out there and making... Uh, you know, making our, our mm-hmm. opponents um, fight the fight with us and, and prove their case mm-hmm. in, in in any way that that they can. But uh, you know, they they you know we continually see that that sometimes facts aren't provided or information and evidence is kept away uh, because it didn't fit with the theory. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, and that's something we need to look for. And if we're properly prepared and work through these protocols, we tend to find those mistakes. And we can uh, uh, fix fix those on behalf of our clients, so to speak. Okay, Dean, we're going to take another break. More to come with Colorado Private Investigator Dean Beers and the answer to the blast from the past question in a moment. News, opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, Radio to Thrive By. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. It's time for the answer to our blast from the past moment and then back to our Today's guest, Dean Beers. So the blast from the past question, thanks to museum, PI Museum curator Ben Harold, is in 1998, what state's governor had the power to issue or revoke a private investigator's license? And, Dean, I know you know the answer to that question. I know the answer. In 1898, the governor could revoke a license for private eye in Colorado. Yep. Colorado had tougher PI laws than California did at the time and was one of the foundations for New York developing their own PI laws. And then some, at some point in time, they decided that it wasn't necessary to have a licensing law, and it got abolished, and now you're back on track. Yeah, in 1977, it was declared unconstitutional for lack of a sufficient definition. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, and interesting, on a real quick note, the PI licensing law in 1877 was the first law passed as a state by Colorado. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, this so 100 is, years later, it was found unconstitutional, and now we're back to uh, having it again. 
Well, that's wonderful. It's just wonderful. I know you guys worked hard on it. This information about uh, from 1898 comes out of a book called Know the Law, uh, the detective law book and practical advisor that's published in 1898 by the Webster Detective Library. And it sold uh, at $1.50 per year uh, and published quarterly. <laughs> wow. I know. That, you know, and, and licensing in Colorado at the time, I believe, was $300. Um, for the year in 1898. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting trivia. Thank you for bringing that up about Colorado success. Yes, absolutely. So uh, back to what we were talking about earlier, you apply the 80-20 rule to investigations. What does that mean? Well, generally speaking, you know, 80-20 is that, that rule is basically... 80% 80% of your income will come from 20% of your work or 20% of your clients, that type of thing. And it's the same thing I've found roughly. I mean, it's not an exact science or anything, but that 20% of our information that we use comes from 80% of the work that we do. So talking to a, to a witness, you know, we may end up using only 20% of what they use. And that works on down the line clear to when the attorney presents it to the judge and jury. I mean, in the end, they may ultimately use a whole whopping 5% of our whole investigative process. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, that means we need to do a very in-depth investigation and we need to find very key facts and we need to make sure we report those thoroughly uh, because that may be information that um, helps the judge and jury completely understand what happened, just that little, you know, 5 to 20% component. You know, and I think that probably a lot of people aren't aware that not everything that is investigated on a case, regardless of what side it's on, actually gets presented at trial. Yeah, well, there's different reasons. Uh, there's constitutional reasons and statute and case law and procedural, and, and exactly right. It comes down to uh, both sides work very hard to get their information in, and they work very hard to get the opponent's information left out for whatever reason. Um, and we can go back to the O.J. Simpson trial or the current Casey Anthony trial, for example, and see that, you know, there's very little, through all the discovery and disclosure we read or our own reports that we submit, if you sit in on the trial uh, that you've just investigated for, you'll find that, honestly, less than 20% of, of everything is going to make it to the trial. Mm-hmm. And that's what the judge and jury counts on. So we have to be, we have to be very thorough and factual. Right. Right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to offer to the people who are listening today about uh, conducting investigations? Well, I'd, I'd like for them to think about the skills that either going into the investigative arena, if they're thinking about it, or if they're hiring an investigator, if they happen to be listening to the show to find out what they need to hire an investigator, think about the skills and ethics and professionalism uh, that the investigator should have. And if not, you know, there's always a network that we can go find that out from our experts and our consultants and stuff. You know, we're we're one component of a big legal drama, and I also think that we're we're one of the most important components. We're the eyes and ears, um, you know, of that for both our client as well as the trier of fact. I think ultimately, um, who we're presenting to. And Dean, if people wanted to get your book, Practical Methods for Legal Investigations. Concepts and protocols in civil and criminal cases. How would they do that? Uh, they can go to the. It's through CRC Press. 
um, they can go to the website uh, that has been set up for it at practicalmethodsforlegalinvestigations.com. So if you just take the short title of the book and add .com to it, it'll take you there with all kinds of information about the book, a peek at the table of contents and some other matter, and uh, information on ordering. Okay, great. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again, Dean. Good luck on your book. And Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, too. And those of you who are listening, if you're interested in knowing more about PI Museum, you can go to www.pimuseum.com. Thank you to my other sponsors, the Brownian Programs, Insurance, Merlin Information Services, IRB Search, PI Magazine, and Tamara Thompson Investigations. Next week will be California private investigator Denise Savastano, who is exploring the cold case of her own father's murder from 20 years ago. You will not want to miss this one. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.